Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, February 21st, 2022. And this year, we're excited to take you on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebrick with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Eero, and though I may not be long in the tooth, I am long in the ear. Nice. We're excited to be talking about long ear sunfish, as Guy alluded to. Our guest is Brian Zimmerman, who's a research associate at Ohio State University and a sunfish enthusiast. So welcome, Brian. Thank you. So I guess first things first, this is an incredibly beautiful fish, and it's got that name, long ear, in there. Are you able to just describe what it looks like if someone had this fish in hand? Just a really good description for us. Um, to me, they are the most colorful sunfish in North America, or maybe the most colorful fish in North America. A lot of people think of a lot of the really colorful darters as being things that are super colorful, but these guys definitely rival those for sure. They vary a lot across their range, which is something we'll probably talk about more, but they have various shades of bright blues and oranges, and my favorite population of them possesses a nice bright red orange streak down the middle of the forehead and they have all kinds of blue and red vermiculations across the sides of the face and body. The males of course are more colorful than the females which is true of a lot of fish but the males of these when they're in breeding condition in the summer is just amazing. They're just eye-popping I guess would be a good way to put it. Hard to beat. When we hear long ear I mean they really do have that long kind of protuberance coming off of their operculum, right? Can you describe like what that is and does it have a purpose for these fish? Yes, it's not actually their ear. It certainly is in the position on the side of a fish that would make it look like it's an ear. What it actually is, it's an extension off the opercular flap or gill cover and it's rather flexible and they it's much longer on males than it is on females. Females actually don't have all that long of a flap and it's used in displays. When you watch these in aquariums, males flare them at one another to make each other look larger. They will flare them straight out and make their head look bigger, basically, to ward off other males and try to impress each other. Maybe it impress the females too, but certainly to make themselves look bigger to other males. And I've kept these in aquariums for most of my life. And the first thing they do, if you put two males in an aquarium, and one tries to become more dominant over the other, and they will actually attack each other's gill flaps and try to rip those extensions off. Oh. Uh, probably make it so that fish can no longer display those and make himself look as big as he could have before. So oh, That's rude. Brutal. <laughs> yes. They are very aggressive fish in captivity. So We did the whole first year of this podcast kind of focused on Alaskan fishes. So one of the things that I was really excited for when we sort of expanded out is that we get to do these Lepomus species and centrarchids. And this, so this is our first Lepomus, first centrarchid. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit more about sunfishes and their diversity and where this fish falls in to those. Yeah. So the family of sunfish is a fairly large family, has somewhere between 40 and 50 species in North America. And it is a strictly North American fish family. Lepomis is the group that the long ear fits in. And they are what most people think of as sunfish. The typical sunfish would be Lepomis. And that includes really familiar things like bluegill and green sunfish. And there are 
Somewhere, well, there's been 13 described species for a while. Long ears themselves are probably the most diverse one of those. There's recent papers out that kind of suggest that maybe they are somewhere between 16 and six or seven species themselves. Mm -hmm. So that really kind of throws a wrench in the whole, how many species are there in the group? But um, other things that are in this family are things that are people are really familiar with, that like largemouth bass is a sunfish and all of the other black basses, they're just another genera within this family. They are the Micropterus genus. But you also have things like the crappies and rock bass, which there's four in that group as well. Mm-hmm. So there's just a lot of diversity within this group, but the long ears fit into what most people think of as sunfish in that Lepomus genus. This family in general is kind of like the king of sport fish in America, or at least in sort of Southern America, not, not South America, but the Southern U.S. Uh, and oftentimes people, the, these sunfishes, the typical sunfishes, like you're talking about the Lepomus, a lot of times people, when they're just getting into fishing or they're teaching their kids to fish, that's kind of the species or that group of species that people start them on. And I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of time it's a bluegill or a green sunfish is the very first fish that anybody catches as a kid. And people call them panfish too, right? I mean, it's kind of that very general term, but is that because they're kind of round or they're good to eat? Do you know anything behind that term that's used for these fish? I think that that's typically used for anything that's kind of flat-sided like most yep. sunfish are and will go in a frying pan. I mean, they are quite edible. Yep. I enjoy eating them myself. The long ears are one of the kind of mid to smaller end of the Lepomis, so I'm actually not sure if I've ever eaten a long ear. <laughs> they don't quite fit size-wise, but I've certainly eaten plenty of bluegill and red-eared sunfish and some of the larger members of the Lepomis genus. And the other thing with having them in hand, I mean, if you think about these panfish or sunfish or any of these species, I mean, they're they're kind of that round, flat shape, and then they have those really sharp fins. I remember handling them as a kid too. And you kind of like, when you're unhooking them, you got to slide your hand over those spines. Can you talk a little bit about what those are, are for? Yeah, they certainly are. They're very flat and tall shaped, and that's probably to make it harder for a predator to eat them. The spines on the back too would also add to that. They have they actually have both spines in the front half of their dorsal fin and on their the beginning of their anal fin on the lower part of the fish too. So they have spines on both the top and bottom of the body. And that's true of every sunfish species. It's not something special about long-eared sunfish. So you mentioned when you were just talking about seeing these fish in aquariums that from a young age, you've kind of started rearing these fish. I'm just curious how you really got into that. Was it just one day you you put them in there and decided to keep them going? Or what were your aspirations with that? What actually started that was my senior research project in college. I got a small grant from the university actually to build some little rubber-lined garden ponds, essentially, in my parents' backyard. And the whole purpose of it was to see if I could breed the two forms of long ear we have in Ohio, that, which is the typical long-eared sunfish in what is now described as a different species, the northern sunfish. And I had two ponds of each. I put way too many adults in there. I produced a grand total of four or five fry of each because I had 20 some adults in each pond and they were just eating all of their own young. It was just way too many. I actually tried it again then the year after I graduated and learned from my mistake. And I put just two males and four females in each pond 
And it was quite successful. I produced two to 300 in each of the four little ponds. And that was the beginning of my hobby business from that, So, uh, which I still do today. Since then, I've bred probably seven or eight different populations of long ears or strains, or maybe some people call them different species at this point, whatever you want to call them. But I, I like these fish, not just from the aquarium perspective, but I'm very much a fisherman and I've always just loved catching panfish in general. For a while, I actually held the state record for long-eared sunfish in Ohio. Oh, nice. How big was that? It was a whole six and a half inches long and 0.2 pounds. So Nice. <laughs> I held that record, I think, for about six years, from 2006 to 2012, approximately. That state record fish I actually caught on a, a fly rod on an olive woolly bugger for those fly fishermen out there, so... What are some of the craziest ways that you've caught long ear sunfish? And then also, if you were going to go out and target them specifically, what would you use? I said I caught that state record on a fly rod, but I'm actually much more of a spinning rod fisherman. I love using ultralight spinning tackle and small jig heads. I will use ice fishing jigs, uh, especially like little tungsten jigs, not ice fishing, but while I'm wading a stream and tip that with some kind of little soft plastic or sometimes with live wax worms or earthworms, night crawlers, that sort of thing. Any of that will work. Most sunfish are pretty aggressive and you don't really need live bait. You can, you can use a, a small jig head in a little soft plastic, very small soft plastic of some sort and catch plenty. The nice thing about them is, is it's very fast action. These things are, they're hard not to catch. So um, you, can, you can really catch a lot. Uh, which is really great entertainment, especially for kids. Yep. Sunfish are always the first fish that kids catch, and there's a good reason for that, and it keeps them keeps their attention. And it still keeps my attention as an adult. I do, you know, like I said, really use ultralight gear to make it more sporting with these because they're pretty small. This is the first fish in a few episodes we've had. We've had, like, some chubs and lamprey and different fishes that you can't really eat. And I'm really curious if you have a favorite recipe for these fish or just some tips and techniques for eating sunfish generally. And I guess long ears a little bit smaller, but just in general, how do you, how do you prepare these fish? Yeah, I do eat a lot of fish. Sunfish are pretty white flaky fish, which most people will just fry because otherwise if you try to do something else with it, it just falls apart. So that's what I do with them. I will fillet them and fry them up. So that's, you know, how I would eat a sunfish. They're delicious. We don't have any up here in Alaska, obviously, and I miss that flavor and that fried fish kind of taste with those. There is a fish, a marine fish called greenling, and they're about the closest thing you can get to a sunfish up here in terms of taste. But yeah, frying is super good. How, how about you, Guy? You eat them? I have eaten them before. I, I'm not a big fish eater. I'm trying to do more of that and more just wild foods in general. But uh, yeah, you know, basically you just fry them up. They're, they're a panfish for a reason. Not a poor man's lobster. <laughs> so normally when I think about sunfish trying to spawn, I think about them kind of coming up into the shallows and making beds that they sort of defend in these these kind of colonies. I'm curious, is that do they have the same method when they're in the river? Are they are these long ears still able to do that or do they have a different method of spawning? You don't see quite as tightly compact colonies as you do with, say, bluegill or red-eared sunfish that you see in lakes. Long-eared colonies tend to be a little more dispersed. They all form circular pits that they dig out with their tails, 
Bluegills tend to have very tight colonies where the, those circular nests are right on top of each other within a couple feet of each other. Long ears, they do form these loose colonies, but the nest might be five to 10 feet apart. They're a little more spread out. And they're usually on the kind of the edge of a pool in a river. So not in fast current. They do seek out somewhat sheltered areas, usually along a shoreline that's maybe two, three feet deep along the edge of a pool. If you're familiar with the plant called water willow, it's a very common widespread plant species in the U.S. You often see long-eared nests adjacent to those water willow beds. It's something I look for if I'm out fishing for them. So for folks listening out there, and we've touched on it a little bit, what is the like range in the United States where you can catch one of these fish or see these fish? Yeah, these are, they're widespread. There is the very similar northern sunfish in the Great Lakes. And then what is more thought of as long ears is throughout the Ohio River Basin, Mississippi River Basin, and even further southwest, all the way into northern Mexico in the Rio Grande, there's a very unique looking strain down there. If you're going southeastern U.S., they are found in the Mobile Basin and a couple of small river drainers just to the east of there. But the cutoff for their native range would be the Apalachicola. They are not in the Apalachicola Basin. So um, they're naturally found to the west of that. I was wondering how common hybridization is within the long-ear sunfish and then also with, within other Lapoma species that might be introduced to other places. I haven't really seen much mixing between the different forms of long ear. The only place I can think of that is on the northern edge of their range where there is some interplay with what is thought of as actually a different species, the northern sunfish. You do see some sort of gray area where maybe those are integrades or the one river basin where supposedly both co-occur is parts of the upper Mississippi in the Kankakee River system. It probably happens elsewhere, but that's where I'm familiar with. My personal feel is that everything in the Ohio River Basin is sort of the true long ear. And the description, the original description did come from somewhere in the Ohio River Basin. So that won't change. That is sort of, and that includes the Tennessee and the Cumberland and the Ohio. So that's all true long-eared sunfish. There's a unique form that is found along the Mississippi floodplain and maybe a little bit to the west on the lower end of the Mississippi that is found in different habitat even. They are found more often in oxbows and sort of cypress swamps, which is sort of atypical of long-eared sunfish. It's not where you'd expect them to be. They're usually in these flowing riverine systems. And that fish, it looks really different. And you can actually find that in the same river basins sometimes as other forms. So to me, that one seems like a pretty good separate species. Then once you get into... Texas and, and probably the southern part of the Mississippi Basin into the west. I'm less familiar with that. There's some really strange looking things out that direction, but I have never been down there. I, I would like to. I would actually really like to see these, some of these really strange looking long ears that I've only seen photos of from uh, west Texas and even into northern Mexico. They have a large orange patch in the middle of the body and they look almost like some of the cichlid species you see further south in Central America. For folks listening out there, I mean, that intraspecific diversity, so diversity within a species, that's really cool. And we have that in Alaska, too, with sockeye salmon. And if you're, you know, fishing across the U.S. and getting to know all these native fish, it's just kind of a neat thing to key into is how different something can look in the same species. So that's super cool. With all this diversity, are there any traits 
that are common across all the forms. So if someone catches it, it's like, okay, yeah, this is definitely a long year sunfish, even if they can look really different, even within the same system. Yeah, they're all very colorful. That pattern varies a little bit, but they all have really bright coloration on them. The other thing that's fairly consistent is that long opercular flap that they get their name from. The only one that doesn't really have that is the northern sunfish. And that's probably why it was the first thing to be separated out as being a separate species, because it has a very short opercular flap that's kind of on an upward angle. It's nowhere near the length that you would expect from a long-eared sunfish. The rest of the range, they, they have a fairly long opercular flap on the males, and that's pretty consistent. The angle varies. There's a population in the White River Basin, I guess in Missouri and Arkansas, called the droopy ear long ears. It turns down (laughs) on every single fish. It's really weird. So those are kind of strange looking. But other than that, they look kind of like a typical long ear. They just have this downturned ear flap on basically every male I caught in that area. But otherwise, they look kind of like the typical long ear. I used to have sunfish in a tank in Virginia. I don't know what species they were. I don't know if that was legal or not. I was just a kid and they were super cool and really smart and would like come up to the surface when I came in my room to get fed and stuff. But I know a lot of people, it's kind of their first fish, a sunfish, maybe not a long air specifically, but sunfish in general. And you mentioned aquariums as well. What can folks know about keeping these native fish? And are there any regulations or considerations they should have in mind with doing that? Yeah. As far as regulations, these are typically considered sport fish. So it's going to vary from state to state, whether you can catch and keep them in your aquarium. For the most part, what it ends up being is you have to catch them hook and line if you're going to keep them uh, and they'll count against your daily bag limit. That's usually how it works. It varies, of course, from one state to another because these things have a huge range, but they are typically considered sport fish and they have to be as such caught hook and line if you're going to keep one. You can't go out with a minnow or a dip net and catch a young one and keep it. You can buy them, not just long ears, but some of the more common species such as bluegill, red ear, green sunfish will often be sold for aquaculture purposes, for stocking private ponds and that sort of thing. So you can readily purchase them. The other thing is just microfish for them. Use really small hooks and try to start with small juveniles. The small juveniles adapt mm-hmm. better to captivity than large adults. I've found that if you try to put big adults in an aquarium together, they just fight. You can keep a single large male in a aquarium, maybe a 20-gallon aquarium, just fine. You can't fight with anybody if he's by himself. Mm-hmm. The other thing that gets around that is a larger aquarium and a lot of them. My general rule is at least six um, yep. and sort of one per 10 gallons. So maybe a 75 aquarium with seven or eight of these works quite well. And what happens is it breaks down that territorial aggression. You'll still get a dominant fish that chases everybody around. But he's got too many other to spread that aggression out. He can't pick okay. on one individual all the time. Um, and that works really well. They're, they're very adaptable to captivity. They very quickly learn that you mean food. I keep a lot of these in not just long ears, but other sunfish. They learn that I'm the person that feeds them. And they can recognize the difference between me and my daughter. My daughter walks in and tries to feed them. They act all shy and hide up behind the decorations. It's rather fascinating that they do this. That's cool. And I guess a follow-up to that, I mean, if you're going to be keeping these fish and we've talked about all that diversity across these different states and different waters, I'm guessing you don't want to be releasing a fish you caught back in the wild or back into a different area, correct? Yeah, absolutely not. I 
encourage people to, if you do take a fish home, it is yours for the remainder of its life. I strongly believe in that, especially if you're interested in these different forms of long ears, you take them from different places across the country. I, like I've mentioned, I've caught and bred quite a few different strains. Yeah. Those never get released. Those are aquarium fish. And if I do breed those adults at home. I do sell the young to other people. And the way Ohio works is I can breed those in captivity and sell the young. So that's what I'm doing. And I encourage everyone that buys them from me that if you keep these and raise them up in your aquarium, never let them go because I want to see that local diversity preserved. Yeah. And if you release a fish from a different area, you may have the species, but you might be introducing a different strain to, than what you have locally. Or a disease or something. So yeah, yes. I'd, I'd agree with that. Yep. I, I know this is a fish show, but I do have an interstate commerce question for you. <laughs> it's all related, guy. Yeah, if you're talking about like, say someone orders these fish that you have from a state other than Ohio, or maybe, I don't know if there's people from Canada order them or something like that. What laws and stuff do you have to deal with? Because they're such common fish, most states do allow people to have these. The thing I, w- I always tell people is make sure you check your local rules. I can export them from Ohio, but I put it on the person receiving them to make sure that they're allowed to be bringing these in too. The other thing too, is I do not send anything outside of the US. I have people ask all the time. A lot of North American fish are quite popular in Europe. And I just insist that, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, So being someone who works in conservation too, I just, I don't want to be sending things other places too. So Conservation ethics, business ethics, I like it, Brian. Do you have any final messages you want to give folks listening about the species in particular? I guess just, you know, it is my favorite fish, and and it's in a large part of that is because I can relate to them in so many different aspects. I love fish in every way. And so long years have kind of interacted with me, at least while I was in college, from a research standpoint, I love them as aquarium fish. So they kind of serve all these different interests of mine, all in one species and just the excellent color on them. And and it's just all wrapped up into one fish. So I think that's why they're my favorite fish is because they serve so many different roles and purposes, I guess, for me. So that's awesome. Right on. Thank you. Brian, so it's been great talking with you today. This was super interesting to learn about these long ear sunfish. And thanks again for coming on the show. Yeah, this is fun. Yeah, you're welcome. I enjoyed it too. Get out there and enjoy all the fish, especially the sunfish. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebick, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar, produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore Lambert. Production management by Gabriella Montaquin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. <laughs>